Hello and a big warm welcome to the Class Clean Psych podcast. I'm Clarabella Gray. And I'm Kate Rushby-Jones and we are part of the Class Clean Psych Collective. This podcast aims to shine a light on the role of class in clinical psychology. In our episodes, we'll talk to people about how class has shaped them personally and professionally. Today, we're chatting with Rachel Hurst about her working class experiences and her clinical psychology journey. So sit back, grab a cup of tea and enjoy today's episode of the Class Clinside podcast. Today, we are hugely privileged to have Rachel Hurst with us. And she is a second year trainee clinical psychologist at the University of Liverpool. So hugely grateful that you're giving us your time today, Rachel. Hello. I don't know what to say. This is so interesting. I've never heard a podcast before. Well, we're very very new at it too. So we're all all in the same boat. Um, It would be really lovely um, just to hear a little bit about your background, kind of who you are, where you're from, and I suppose what it was like growing up in a working class background or kind of how you experienced that while you were growing up. Yeah, okay. So um, I grew up in a little old town in North Wales, um, probably the most insignificant and boring place you could ever imagine (laughs) existing. Um, Am I allowed to ask the town? Because we were just talking before we started, weren't we, about about the area. So where where did you grow up? Um, so, in a very uh, working class sense, I moved around a lot when I grew up. Um, so, where I would say I grew up is Flint, in Flintshire. Yeah. Um, but I went to school in a place called Mould, and yeah. I moved around different places like Holkin, Pentrahulkin, Bagilt, and Connors Key, I think, even for like a very yeah. short period as a baby. Um, the only places I really remember is Bagilt and um, Mould, and then Flint. Um, so they were kind of my main sort of areas of growing up and kind of where my family's from-ish. My mum's from a little village called Mostyn um, and my dad was born and raised in Bagel as well. Mm. So yeah, very, really interesting sort of um, growing up, I think, because very almost sheltered yeah. in a lot of ways, like just little town, didn't kind of the nearest city I grew up to was Liverpool where I am now um, or Chester I suppose but yeah. Chester's just also very small um, and very very different to where I grew up as well it's kind of got um, it's a lot more posh than where I grew up um, so yeah I think now like if I'm thinking retrospectively like growing up everything obviously just seemed normal to me like everything was just yeah what it was but now I look back and I think gosh like I come from a place where things are very like narrow-minded very sheltered very sort of um insular yeah um mm. if that makes sense um I very much feel like an outsider of that now it's very strange mm. um but yeah so growing up I gosh where to start and what to what to select because there's just so much <laughs> I could say I suppose yeah. Um, yeah. but I grew up predominantly with my mum I, I my mum and dad split up when I was very young so um I lived in my with my mum growing up um, and my stepdad from a fairly young age and um, I have many many siblings all over the place um, but I grew up predominantly with my older brother Kyle and then um, when my stepdad and my mum got together I had a younger stepbrother and then my younger sister um, mm. of my mum and stepdad so there was kind of at least six of us in the house at one time very very busy household very chaotic household Mm. Um, lots of um, love in the house but also lots of chaos and other emotions and just things Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of and I would say I was probably the person that was like the most um, I don't know what the word is really but I was kind of the child that maybe needed the least I was kind of the most I was able to just kind of get all the things yeah self-sufficient independent yeah yes definitely Um, my brother had ADHD um, he was like your sort of textbook typical um, young boy with ADHD, very energetic, lots of energy, lots of stuff um, going on all the time. And then obviously, so my little sister, I say obviously, you won't know, my little sister um, is 10 years younger than me. So from like the age of 10, there was always, like, there was always a child that needed lots of stuff. 
um, because she was a baby. So mm. I think I just learned to be really independent and self-sufficient and mm. I kind of um, really enjoyed school. I was kind of quite, I suppose you could call me quite an academic child. It feels really strange now because I wouldn't call myself an academic adult at all. Um, <laughs> considering my position, you'd sound really <laughs> odd because I'm a trainee, but I don't identify as a really academic person. Um, mm. Some of that feels kind of quite linked to my roots, I think. Because, yeah, yeah. Um, I come from a family who, so my mum and dad are both very intelligent people, um, lots of potential in terms of, um, they always say like they could have gone very, very far, but kind of didn't. Um, both have, and my dad's got a, a fairly well-paying job. I'd say he's got like a middle-class wage now, yeah. um, but he's a, he's a fitter. You know, it's not a very middle-class role as such. Mm, it's it's a, more of a very, trade. yeah. Exactly. Mm. Um, so he still has that very working class mentality, but just with the finances that kind of back up more of a middle class um, yeah. sort of standpoint. And then my mum's very much still very working class, very working class wage. Um, like I earn more than my mum now, which is really strange. Yeah. Um, but I think like my mum's always been that person that's been like, oh, I wish I'd have done more with myself. So there was always mm. like a bit of a, not a pressure. I wouldn't say my mum's ever pressured me to, um to get where I've got to but there was always like a real um want and urge for me to do my best and kind of fulfill my potential and to um mm. be the person at home that would like go really far um and I think that's something I've definitely heard from other people that come from working class backgrounds that sense of like uh, you can do more than this you can mm, make more of yourself yeah. you don't have to stay here do you know um so I think um, the mentality at home was always very much like, oh, Rachel enjoys school. She's quite academic. She does really well. Um, I was the first person to go to university in my family. Mm. Um, sort of, I kind of carry that sort of academic hat, I suppose, in terms mm. of my family, even though my mum and dad are very intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, Sounds like they kind of really identified that strength in you you know that that it sounds like you sort of went into school and sort of you know left that family that home environment and went into school and it felt like it sort of fitted on some level and that you you know you had your strengths there and that then your parents were very much sort of bit like I think I think you're spot on in what you describe and we've definitely heard it come up I think in in the conversations we've had for the podcast so far haven't we Kay that that sort of you know parental influence of like wanting you to succeed and maybe wanting Mm. to follow that more sort of you know can't can't see it on the podcast recorded but in in quotations or follow (laughs) that academic route you're the academic one and it sounds like that's a little bit of kind of part of your story your narrative that that was sort of almost the the sort Mm. of uh role let's say that was kind of assigned to you within the family yeah definitely and I think it really influenced the sort of friends that I then had because I have Mm. um pockets of friends I kind of as you grow up I think you kind of have pockets of friends from different places or different sort of times in your life um so when I very was very young those people like around where I lived that I'd be Mm. friends with and then there's friends I started making in school and then kind of moving kind of um into higher education and stuff started to be very very different um and I noticed a real difference in terms of class I think mainly Mm. so a lot of my friends um kind of in later sort of high school maybe were a lot more middle class I noticed a lot of differences between me and my friends so Mm. like friends who were bought cars by their parents and like all their driving lessons were paid for and um just the houses were much bigger the houses were much nicer they didn't have to use their dining room as their brother's bedroom because there's enough space <laughs> you know like just things like that where you think like gosh this is really different and like my bestest bestest friend more like family than a friend growing up w- was really similar to me really similar background um so I thought that was really really normal until I started making these friends where I was like oh my gosh like this is not how mm-hmm. everybody grows up um and I think we all have those realizations for lots of different things as you know across the course of life but I definitely remember thinking like oh wow this is really interesting um and there's always been something about my my mum has always been a person who's really strongly identified with this sort of stuff um Mm. being very working class but also had a real has always had a real thing around kind of not wanting that to show I think not not wanting that to like the cracks to show almost Um, yeah Mm. so like taking friends home from school she'd be really aware of um how clean the house was and like all that mm, sort of stuff yeah. um 
and that was a real thing I just noticed this real like disparity between me and a lot of my friends um and then going through university that like even more so kind of came about because I think there are a lot of people that I found like my tribe I guess in the profession and kind of along the way that have come from a similar background to me but certainly um you know predominantly we all know that it kind of is massively um Mm. the space is massively taken up by middle class people yeah Yeah. so so where did you sorry Caravelle no 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 you go ahead Kate (laughs) um so where where did you like psychology journey begin Why, why did you pick psychology Good question. So I think, uh, so I was able to do psychology at GCSE in school. Quite oh, really? Not a lot of, mm, yeah. Never heard that. Um, no, and not a lot of people had. And I think um, I've always just been a really nosy person. I <laughs> have always been really interested in people and their behaviour. Like my stepdad was massive into like serial killer books when I was growing up. Um, I always <laughs> used to love that. We always used to watch like documentaries at home, yeah. stuff like that um so that was I started watching things like Criminal Minds and CSI and then envisioned myself as this person who was going to like solve crime for the for the world (laughs) um figure out who who all these people were and stuff I very much wanted to be a criminal profiler for a while I realized um, how naive that is in the UK especially um but yeah so I think I just like that sort of stuff my mum recognized that in me she did um what did she call it it wasn't called uh, a level at that point or like an o-level or something yeah yeah um in psychology and sociology and she was like i think you'll really like this so i did it at gcse did it a level loved it um and then it kind of it sounds um what's the right word without swearing (laughs) it sounds really sort of like i feel like a bit of an idiot saying it and a bit uh oh my god there is a word but words escape me um, essentially I don't feel like I've I feel like I've kind of fell into psychology in a lot of ways I don't think I've actively thought mm. from a very young age I want to be a clinical psychologist that's what mm. I'm gonna do I didn't even know they existed um, mm. which I think also feels like a very working class thing in yeah. some ways I guess now a lot of the people I get in touch with in terms of like the people I work with in services come through from very working class or maybe disadvantaged backgrounds yeah so you might connect with a clinical psychologist in that way yeah um, but sort of, I wasn't aware of all these posh, fancy, growing up, aware of and Yeah, I, it was just one of those things where I was like, oh, I like psychology. I just kind of followed my nose, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I had a lot, lot of questions around some of the earlier things that you mentioned, but I'll let you, you ask your question first, Kate. It wasn't a question. I was just going to say, did your sound go funny then? <laughs> I don't know if you picked up on it, Rachel, but it went really no. gremlin-y. <laughs> oh, Okay. Um, whereabouts from I'm just thinking I can't I'm trying to think how much do you want me to repeat well you were talking about having done the GCSE and the A-level and kind of it sort of almost falling yeah following your nose into psychology basically yeah so I was saying wasn't I about sort of um that it wasn't like I knew I wanted to be a clinical psychologist really early in life and then I pursued it as a career didn't even know what they were Mm. (laughs) had no idea that clinical psychologists even existed probably until like I always think back I think probably my master's but that can't be true surely I must have known what they were before then um in a brief sense but not in like us in how I know now um but yeah I feel like I just kind of followed my nose and almost fell into it yeah um which sounds just really for want of a better phrase, and you can definitely bleep this or call it out, but just really dick- dickish. Do you know what I mean? It just sounds like, oh, I just found myself here. Um, and I don't mean it like that, but that is kind of what it feels like when I look back and think about it. But it's, it's, it's interesting because as I've heard you talking about your early life and thinking about that, yeah. just what, what, what might have been those factors around sort of just falling into it. And I think, you know, like clearly mum, a very sort of you know I know it might seem like stating the obvious but a very important figure but I think particularly Mm. like you were saying that she'd done a qualification in psychology hadn't Mm. she and she she showed an interest in your interests around psychology and sounded more like forensics or psychology and things at the time but that those things can often really shape us can't they and it sounds as though that was probably in combination with sort of being selected as the academic one in the family that probably had a really strong kind of influence you know and 
I guess the other thing that really stood out to me when you were talking, and I don't know if it's just because it's a sort of resonance point for me, but, you know, you were talking about, I, I guess, bit more of an awareness of becoming of being working class when you went into high school almost as though up until that point mm. because of maybe some of the areas that you grew up in it was sort of the norm wasn't it to kind of be yeah. around other people from from a similar sort of background mm. and more that when you went to high school that you yourself maybe started to notice that difference and I was just really mm. curious because when you were talking about like maybe mum how mum might have felt then when people from your school came back to your house and how you know again maybe this is this is the resonance point it's sort of a sense of anxiety and also maybe a sense of shame that comes up and how we manage that and I very much remember those experiences from from my childhood and isn't that sort of interesting that sort of when we notice those differences like your Mm. peer group your friends in high school it's kind of has this association with shame and anxiety Mm. and I was just really interested when you mentioned around that from your mum who obviously clearly wanted so much for you but kind of also maybe felt that sort of pressure around those things as as well yeah gosh definitely and it's quite interesting and I've always thought about this but didn't really have a way to frame it or think about it until Mm. I actually attended one of the virtual um, webinars Mm. um, with Classroom Psych where there was a guy, I'm sure his name is Liam, um, talking about growing up how you'd kind of never necessarily know he was working class or he never, there was lots of parts of him that didn't feel working class because Mm. his parents did so much to almost shelter him from it Yeah, Um, and I really resonated with that and I think very much was a huge driver from my mum especially this idea that and I wonder do I do wonder whether that connects with a bit of that sense of shame or anxiety Mm. around um not wanting that to be the case there was lots of sort of like really intricate dynamics between um, my mum and one of her sisters Mm. um of which kind of had a lot of um when they split and were you know grown-ups um she went into a very rich sort of um with a very rich husband and like had a very different life and I think there was almost I don't want to say a rivalry, but maybe like an internal sort of awareness that, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm the person who's not made enough of myself. Yeah. Um, and I think that really influenced then me making a lot of myself, me sort of um, kind of having everything that I need and being set up really well. And like, I don't think from the outside, a lot of people would have realised necessarily just how much as a family we probably struggled financially yeah. because my mum just did such a good job at sheltering everybody from that. Um, mm. Kind of the outside world externally kind of, um Mm. you know that front was there but very much like internally kind of in the house um Mm. within our system it was very we were very sheltered um I was very aware of those things I'm a very observant person I was always a very observant child so I was very aware of it but Mm. um I never I couldn't say I I kind of felt that crippling um difficulty of kind of not having enough um It's it's, it's so, it just feels so important, doesn't it, sort of hearing that and thinking about, you know, that additional Mm. sort of, I guess, psychological burden that your mum carried in addition to like maybe some of the practical things. And then also, I guess it it reminds me of what you were saying earlier in the interview about that kind of very self-sufficient or independent kind of part to you. And I guess maybe that leads us on to thinking about kind of the 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 next part of your story pursuing clinical psychology and I know you said you sort of almost sort of Mm. fell into it but maybe say a little bit about kind of your route then from your undergraduate or or kind of from that point on and maybe getting clinical experience to kind of where you are now as a a trainee kind of what what has your route been like Rachel? Yeah so I I would say I probably followed the very stereotypical route for the most part um I went to Bangor University did my undergraduate and then um I just loved psychology but after undergraduate I was just sick of education so I went back home and um desperately tried to find any job related to psychology that I could as we all kind of do um and managed to find a, a psychology graduate in inverted commas um, for those <laughs> of um post in uh, a learning disability residential service um, it very much wasn't the psychology graduate post. If mm. um, you haven't gathered that already, by my inverted <laughs> comment, um, it was um, a, basically like a care working sort of role. And yeah. don't get me wrong, I learned tons um, from that role, and it's something I still reflect on all the time. Um, I learned more about what I wouldn't want to do and what I wouldn't want to take forward than I yeah. did about what I would. 
Um, mm. But that's just as important, if not more important, I think, than the stuff that you would want to. Um, so I did that for, I managed for about three months and then I found another role in a private inpatient mental health ward. Um, so then I was a support worker there for kind of, it took me up until like from like January till September, so like nine months or so. And then I decided that I just felt like I needed to know more. I think I really felt like I got shoved into the deep end um, working there. It was a very, very stressful role. I was an anxious little bubble of a human for nine months. <laughs> um, lots of anxiety and like feelings of responsibility, um, mm. which then pushed me to kind of just extend my sort of education a little bit. Um, mm. And also because I was Welsh, um, didn't have the family that could back up the finances to let me do a master's any earlier than that anyway, because the finance for um, Welsh people was for master's degrees mm. only came out that year, which was, I think, 2018 I want to say um so I was only actually just like I wasn't able to do a master's straight after uni because I physically couldn't have paid for it unless I wanted to take out a loan or something like that and um that obviously didn't seem like a very um wise decision uh at such a young age so I kind of worked um worked my arse off to be honest doing Mm -hmm. support worker stuff to get tuppence um Mm. but um yeah I still lived at home and stuff and then yeah, I managed to do a master's when I finally got the finance as a Welsh person, which was great. Um, absolutely loved my master's, like thoroughly loved my master's. It was so stressful, really intense, but just loved it. What um, was your master's, Rachel? So my master's was clinical and health psychology, so quite general, really. Um, but the way it works in Bangor is that you kind of like select a lot of your modules. So I did actually a lot of neuro stuff um, yeah. because Bangor has a really strong neuro um, department there. So. Um, I've got some really good teaching there and I just felt like um, I connected with a lot more of like an applied sense of psychology. That's when I very first heard about the doctorate. Mm. So my thesis supervisor, a lady called Judith Roberts, an absolute babe of a human. <laughs> I owe her an awful lot in terms of my career progression because she just held me at a time where I really needed holding and doing my master's. I had a lot of family stuff going on. Mm. Um, and... Um, uh, she was a clinical psychologist, qualified clinical psychologist. So she kind mm. of very much guided me around um, the doctorate. And I did my first ever doctorate application. I'm very much one of those people that I like to know things for myself in my own experience rather than kind of just hearing it from everybody else. Um, and we kind of figured out that I did just about meet the minimum criteria to apply and it not be completely pointless. Mm. Um, there was no chance I wanted to get on. Like, the idea of getting on terrified me but I just wanted to know what it was like and kind of mm. understand what it was like to write an application mm. so I did did that during my master's um obviously didn't get on um because I, <laughs> I say obviously that's probably a bit a bit mean but like there was no chance I was gonna get on I didn't want to but I think the yeah trying to write an application at that point was really really interesting mm. from there um after what? my master's I managed to Sorry, what do, what do you think I've, I've interrupted your flow haven't I and I no, should have waited till after we'll what what do you think what do you think Judith saw in you oh gosh that's a good question certainly not the right person to answer that I don't think but <laughs> um because think... she clearly she clearly did see something didn't she and like you say yeah. you sounded like you were you were going through a really difficult time and and that she felt oh. that you know that you'd be an asset to the profession in some sort of way because given how many yeah. sort of people she might have potentially known to to kind of who would have been wanting to pursue clinical I just wonder kind of mm. you know what what maybe she sort of noticed in you that was sort of important yeah. or special yeah that's a really good question I've not really thought about it like that actually until you've just said that which is really interesting mm. um definitely don't give myself enough credit I don't think most of the time <laughs> it probably has influenced that um but I think I've always I've I, I've always been a very sort of passionate doesn't feel like it quite hits the mark it doesn't feel like quite the right word but I've always been an extremely curious person I've always been an extreme I'd say nosy but I am a very curious person I am a very I would say um I probably have a lot of lived experience which I think now I really hold strongly as a huge Uh asset to what I can bring to the profession I think Judith possibly saw a little bit of that I was always just so interested um and I think I would probably sound quite a reflective person I think I've had that feedback probably from around Judith onwards um yeah I think 
that was definitely something we spoke a lot about was just kind of we'd sit and have really long meetings and conversations around either life stuff because she kind of very much took also a personal tutor role as well as like a thesis supervisor role for me and <laughs> um, maybe also a very unpaid underpaid therapist um but she <laughs> sort of <laughs> I think just like we had lots of conversations around like personal stuff that very much linked to mm. studies and thesis and kind of lots of stuff and like that and I think um I showed my interest just basically we spoke a lot about my job before coming to my master's um, yeah. which clearly I knew what a psychologist was before my master's going back to what I was saying before because I worked with them when I was a support worker so yeah that's when I found out what a psychologist was properly I think when I first started working um mm. after my undergrad but um yeah I think we just spoke a lot about that sort of stuff I, I reflected on a lot of my experiences working and mm. I think yeah oh. I don't, don't know my ha- how did your family feel at this point like when you started applying how did they sort of react to that they were like oh wow (laughs) oh my god we're gonna have a doctor in the family like that sort of typical like yay yeah um, sort of response and um that sort of sense of so I was saying earlier about how I never felt like a real pressure a real sense of having to Mm. um like it was more just about like fulfilling my potential and doing the best that I could for me um, but I think there was almost like a bit of a something switched slightly when I got to this point of academia, like doing a master's, um, you know, potentially pursuing a doctorate where like um, the narrative very much changed to like, a, you know, so proud of you. But, you know, make sure you do your doctorate. Don't stop there. Like make sure, you know, and like Keep when I stopped. Yeah. When I'd stopped to do um, go back into like working and stuff they were like you're gonna like go for the doctorate though aren't you and I don't think they kind of realized the context of needing work experience to be able to even be eligible for the doctorate and kind of mm. um, go forth with it but there was definitely like a you are gonna do the doctorate though aren't you and I was like yes okay <laughs> like it's a huge pressure already um and I think yeah that there was like a real sort of like clinging on tightly to that idea that there could be someone in the family that would fulfill a role that went I suppose beyond some of those expectations that, that they mm. had for themselves or as a family or I don't know um mm. expectations of me maybe I'm not sure what it is but yeah they they were definitely very excited and very like gosh that's amazing like um really proud of me but in I think I experienced that as quite pressured sometimes I was mm. gonna say I wonder what your experience was of that expectation you know mm. what what that felt like for yeah. you on a psychological level and I imagine there isn't just a, like yeah. a, it felt x you know it would be multifaceted but like I just wonder you know yeah. in your own words what what that has felt like for you sort of carrying carrying that yeah. that the weight of expectation let's say yeah tough I think I think I've already said I made it clear that I'm a person that's quite hard on myself I think mm. it was very like oh gosh well what what if I don't do the doctorate what if I don't do this what does that mean does that mean I'm a disappointment or I'm mm. sort of I've always seen myself and I think probably lots of people listening um can relate as a huge perfectionist I think a lot of people who listen to <laughs> tend, tend to label themselves that way um but I have always been a massive perfectionist and I think there was a real part of me that felt very very scared about well what if I don't do this then what does that mean Mm. are you not going to be as proud of me are you not going to be as excited for me are you not going to be as supportive of what I'm Mm. doing are you not going to be sort of um yeah what's that mean Mm. am I a disappointment am I a failure lots of that sort of stuff Mm. I I also think that there's there's sort of people that maybe are outside of clinical psychology don't understand how difficult it is to pursue it as a career just to kind of go through the application process and go through the interview Mm. process it's a lot harder than other professions (laughs) yeah gosh it really is and I think there's an extra layer of complexity then when you come from this background exactly there's so many more barriers as a working class person than there is for people from other backgrounds but and, and that's complex complicated and complex and intersectional mm. um mm-hmm. but mm. it is a lot harder it feels a lot harder and and I'd be really interested to kind of you know I think you sort of started to talk about it already but you know mm. I wonder what you think the barriers are that you faced like in mm. in your your route into becoming a trainee or even in your experience of being a trainee you know barriers yeah. due to being from a, a working class background and you know maybe you could just say a little bit kind of about what your experience has been in that way yeah so I guess I think 
I sometimes think from hearing from other people and their experiences around this particular question and like listening to the webinars and stuff, I think I'm somewhat unique in this. That might just be because I've not heard the right conversations maybe, but mm. I feel like I faced less sort of practical physical barriers. I didn't have that sense of like physically not having enough money to do things. Um, mm. I think when you go into uni and you're poor, you actually end up faring better and a lot of your friends got jealous because you have a lot of student finance or I did at least <laughs> in Wales. I kind of got a lot of like grants and stuff. Yeah. Um, which meant that I was um, seemed a lot um, more well off, even though that obviously wasn't the case. Um, but I think those sorts of things didn't feel as such a barrier. But I think just coming from the, the areas that I grew up in, mm. I didn't come from hugely academic or um, like areas or like families or even though my parents are very intelligent. I think there's something about a working class environment or it's very sort of um what's the word that's sort of like very salt of the earth very like grounded very they have their own language almost yeah um, yeah yeah if that makes sense yeah absolutely um, very different sort of the way that they talk about things and the way that things are understood very very different I think um I kind of that's the thing I noticed the most as being a barrier for me I feel like I always had to do a lot more to sound like I fitted in and mm. to sound articulate and to sound um, like I was meant to be where I was. And I saw that as a huge barrier and I struggled with that quite a lot. Um, mm. Mm. And I think even just things like my accent, like now I think I probably sound quite, a lot of people where I grew up told me I always sounded quite well-spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I think I generally am all right. Um, but when I'd come into clinical psychology, I felt the need to be extra. Like, even now, I wonder whether there's probably certain things that I'm saying that, like, even saying rather than saying, like, it's just the way that I'm saying things, like, a little bit um, nicer sounding because I'm in a professional capacity or thinking about things um, around my work um, or career and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was a massive barrier. And then I think I've massively seen that in the doctorate as well, because you get yeah. people that have come from all sorts of walks of life. You get people who have sort of, um, I don't know, sort of had tons of experience. You know, like people that come on the doctor are all very different ages. I am extremely privileged that I got on at a point where I consider myself to be very young. I'm only 27. Yeah. My When I got on, I think the day before I got um, a place offered to me, I was 24. I turned 25. No, I turned 25 the day before I got um, a place offered to me. And I think... Um, then coming into a doc- onto the doctorate where there's people that perhaps have had very, very different journeys. Either they've not pursued the doctorate as like a first career or straight away mm-hmm. or anything mm. like that. Um, or um, people who have just had to take all of those years to kind of really get to where they are. Yeah. Um, you just, you know, you pick up um, knowledge and experience and words for the things that you need words for. Um, mm-hmm. And that makes things feel, you just feel really different. Um, so I think that's felt like a massive barrier for me in lots of ways. And yeah. Very much added to that sense of imposter syndrome, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, like, how do you find it sort of navigating between the people that you work with in terms of on the course, like other, like your mm-hmm. peers or your colleagues, and also yeah. then maybe the, the people that you work with in terms of service users or clients? Mm-hmm. like. How do you feel like your background is maybe because it feels like that that lang like language and maybe your mm. accent could be a strength in some ways. So I wonder if that makes you more like relatable to service users and mm. the people that you're working with. I don't know what what's your experience of that. Yeah, no, that's a really good question and definitely something I've thought a lot about. I actually mm. mentioned um, me changing the way I speak in my doctor application because oh, it felt like you? such a core part of my experience. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I think um, that felt very linked to class for me and I think I might have put that in there somewhere Mm. Um, but yeah I think um, I sort of I do see it as a strength and I do think it's very much allowed me to um, connect to people on a very different level less so my accents I suppose contextually speaking I'm in Liverpool now and obviously Liverpool has a very well-known accent um, and I I do sound a lot more well-spoken than um, some of the people that I get in touch with in terms of um, service users mm. compared to um, 
like peers and colleagues and stuff like that. What's really interesting I find in Liverpool is that there's not a lot of psychologists or people on my course, for example, um, that are Scouse or are from you know, oh. from Liverpool and have a Scouse accent. Um, a lot of people <laughs> are from other areas. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think some of that is just people come to Liverpool and kind of stay. It's a great place. Um, very biased. I love it here. <laughs> but I think like there's, there's lots of that. But also um, there is, I think, I've always seen it as almost like a bit of a class thing as well. Yeah. Where there's... Um, you know, there's a lot of people who are from maybe areas that are less disadvantaged. Liverpool is kind of quite well known for being quite a disadvantaged mm-hmm. uh, city. There's a lot of history around, mm-hmm. um, you know, political history around that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that massively influences um, the kind of people that come into the profession. And, um, yeah. it's, it's so interesting, isn't like. it? Like an, an accent and how much mm. that is like how much that signifies rightly or wrongly or accurately or mm. inaccurately because you know I was saying to you you both before we started recording I trained in North Wales and like my mm. my CAMS placement was kind of near near the areas that you described you grew up in Rachel which yeah. is really interesting for me but yeah. yeah you know to to people from from those areas I sound really mm. southern and probably really posh <laughs> <You know? laughs> whereas that doesn't reflect my background but it's interesting because I would I would also agree with something that you kind of said as well I think at different points of career or in different contexts my sort of accent has morphed in different ways as well but and and I suppose it's sorry that's me joining that's all right (laughs) but but, you know I think you're mentioning some really interesting things there and, and Kate kind of also mentioned around the strengths that potentially kind of exist within that and I just wonder from your side kind of yeah. what you feel the strength are strengths are or kind of what you notice mm. the strengths have been at different points kind of in your yeah. your your yeah, route definitely I think some of this is really hard to sort of articulate because I think a lot of this is really intangible mm. there's, a, there's just a sense you get when you're in the room with somebody that they kind of just understand um and I think some of that's really intangible it's hard to put into words and it's hard to say what that is in particular um or it feels that way but also I think just the way I describe things the words that I use just probably fit I hope and I think I've had feedback sometimes that they feel a lot more accessible to people. Mm. I don't use big jargony, fancy, posh words. I probably do more so now. Um, and I do sometimes, even now, like I've caught myself a couple of times during the podcast, like, oh God, like using like random <laughs> yeah. words. Where I think that's, yeah. it's really strange. It doesn't fit with me as a person, but I think generally they just weave themselves into your vocabulary when you hear them all the time, don't they? Yeah. Um, but I, like, I feel like I, there's a lot less pressure for me to think about what I'm saying because I can kind of just talk as I talk and that'll yeah. be okay in the therapy yeah. room with someone and I like I say I hope that is more accessible and feels more accessible um but I think one thing I I do see as a big strength is that ability to translate some of that stuff and say mm. actually like one of the terms I probably use the most in therapy with people is oh have you ever heard of this right it's just a really posh fancy word for yeah. blah 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 we don't have to use those words I very rarely do but this mm-hmm. is what it's called this is what we know it as as a psychologist but actually what's important is what do you want to call it and I think Mm. because I'm such I'm so aware of my own language and how sort of um othering that felt for me yeah I'm really aware of that in the therapy room and not making the person in front of me feel othered or feel different or feel less than or um you know because they could already be coming to the therapy room with all of those experiences and feelings about themselves and I don't want to exacsabate that there we go there's another posh word that you use in like an essay. Um, <laughs> I don't want to make that worse you know um so I think um I'm re- I hope I'm really conscious of sort of just having a really level playing field and then not yeah. feeling like there's that sense of power differential there yeah there is yeah. one because I'm yeah. I am yeah I do hold more privilege in that space and I always will but I hope that that feels lesser than what it could do if I was sat there as a really sort of like mm. Uh, I want to say Ponzi psychologist. That sounds probably really <laughs> terrible. But it's someone who sat there like, I know everything. I know what's wrong with you. Let's fix you. Mm-hmm. I really don't think I take that approach. And I think a lot of that comes from just my own lived experience or yeah. own sense of being able to connect with people um, mm. who maybe re- sort of resonate with the backgrounds that I've come from. 
that make sense? Absolutely, it does. And I think, you know, I was sort of, you know, thinking back as well to kind of what you were saying about that that experience with with your supervisor and her being able to spend that time with you and I guess Mm. what you're highlighting there that I guess is part of what you're describing too is that she was talking to you about your lived experience she was allowing you that space Mm. for reflection she was kind Mm. of you know navigating that kind of alongside you and I guess that I don't know, in, in speaking to you today and hearing what you were saying there about kind of clinically the way that, y- you know, y- you work for want of a sort of a less poncy phrase, let's say, that those <laughs> things, that those things are, are obviously a huge part of it as well when you've had maybe that opportunity to process who you are, where you come from, what your lived experience is and how we're able to kind of use that in a helpful way in in, in kind of the way that the the way that we work the way that we connect who we are in the therapy Mm. room how that does influence those things and I know that there are those Mm. definitions that you know we're sort of laughing a little bit as we mentioned them but that that they are they are important they are real aren't they there is that power differential and how is it that some of those kind of experiences that we've had because perhaps of our backgrounds and maybe you know helpful figures like your supervisor who might have helped us sort of process them in a positive way or valued them along the way that allow us to kind of use it like that so yeah I, I just I just think the way you've described that is really really clear really nice in terms of, of kind of that positive mm. influence let's say yeah yeah I do think there's a positive influence there and like I say it's tricky because it is intangible but I'm glad that it feels like it's been articulated well um, <laughs> and it feels quite clear um yeah. that's there's a little bit of my uh still that little bit of oh, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't have the right words um still comes in and I think um yeah it's it's just such a unique position to come from, especially then when you get on the course. And, mm. you know, it's like that, as I was describing in like primary school, high school sort of time where everything, you, you start to notice your differences with yeah. the people around you and your peers. Um, and that's quite a jarring experience, isn't yeah. it? To yeah. kind of notice that you are a different person yeah. um, and feel even not outwardly or intentionally othered, but in, internally you feel yeah. that really othered experience. Um I think you you feel it, you go through it all again when you get on the course. Yeah. Or I did. I don't think that maybe not everybody does. Um, but like you're kind of sussing everybody out and sussing where you sit and who your tribe is and mm. where like, you know, it's it's a really difficult and intense mm. profession at any level, let alone just on the course, you know, aspiring mm. kind of training or post qualification and qualified. Like mm-hmm. I think yeah, these are always things you're thinking about, but um, I definitely remember like getting onto the course and being like oh my god there's 30 other people here like yeah where do I stand where do I sit you know uh sort of socially speaking academically speaking um yeah sort of just as a human being like how am yeah. I going to connect with these people and I think already having been equipped with that experience of feeling different yeah you come into these spaces and you you know naturally you you um maybe put yourself in a different standing kind of it impacts the way that you relate to people and the way that you mm-hmm. kind of throw yourself into or don't um mm. into these spaces um I don't know if that makes sense but it is a yeah. really it definitely has influenced the way that I've experienced the course I think yeah. yeah I guess I was just wondering if you would have any advice for anyone sort of aspiring to be in your position now or even anyone that's maybe due to start a course in September yeah Oh gosh, good luck with questions. the course if you're starting at something. Live, live before you get on the course. That's my advice for anybody getting on the course. <laughs> Just take all opportunity if you have them and you're privileged enough to create them for yourself before the course. Just do not read a book. Don't even look at a book. Chuck them all out of your house. Like, just, <laughs> like, be a human being that is not a clinical psychologist for a little bit. Um, mm. Because then you kind of have no choice but to live and breathe it for a little while. Um, mm. Even though I, I always describe myself as the anti-model student on the course. I feel like I kind of break a lot of those barriers anyway. But, yeah, I think I would. my advice probably for an aspiring psychologist would probably be somewhat similar, especially for someone from a working class background. I think we already feel like we have to work so much harder than everybody else. And that's true and that's real. Yeah. Um, that's very valid. But I think actually, don't get yourself into a position where you, you you are kind of not able to switch off from that. 
yeah. my biggest piece of advice for anybody applying for the course going for interviews at the course level at whatever it is uh, is the less you care the better the better mm. you'll fare <laughs> oh mm. I didn't mean for that to rhyme <laughs> the less you care the better <laughs> but it's true um like I was going through like a terrible terrible time with my family I had a really um complex and very close bereavement just before I started doing interviews and I honestly attribute my success in the interviews just to not giving an actual Mm. Shit, yeah, anything yeah. Yeah. I didn't care how I did it was very much like a take me or leave me and I think that meant mm. I was able to just be myself yeah. and not be the person I always felt like I've had to be in professional spaces which realistically isn't me yeah um, and I think that's probably my biggest piece of advice is just find a way to connect with yourself and leave psychologist whoever you are you know Rachel Kate Carabella yeah. at the door yeah. and just be a human being because that's the thing that I find um is my biggest strength in my job especially Mm. in connecting with other people Um, I think I think that's actually really good advice like my recent most recent interview for a doctorate place my my feedback was around anxiety and sort of overthinking it and I think you're so right there and like if if I did I think you said like the least you the the less you care the better you and maybe that's my motto we, next we, time I, we've, we've decided the new tagline of this podcast interview <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. get like if I ever get an interview yeah. again I might go in with that mindset <laughs> honestly like I can't say it's tried and tested I've had friends who've had really sim- not similar experiences in terms of like um, the personal experience but when they've cared less they've done they've they've got places they've done better just because that level of anxiety <laughs> yeah. is just so much less because it's et up by all your other stuff yeah, like, yeah. You, my you don't become yourself do you no. no yeah exactly like I didn't have enough energy to perform enough energy to think about what I was saying other than just what came to mind and mm-hmm. I think taking all that pressure off and thinking you know what actually I'd probably do better if I just didn't get on this year like how inconvenient is this which like what a privilege it is for me to say that first of all again I don't want that to come across in like a well didn't really want to get on but here I am Um, but if I'm being totally honest that was that was where I was at I was going Mm. through such a tough time I just thought actually Mm. can I even do the course the answer to that realistically is no but somehow I'm here um (laughs) but like you know I I did think like gosh this would act like I'm gonna have to really think about this if this is the, like do I want to do these interviews and I thought go on Rachel you've got to do them um, yeah. but I do think that just not having any energy to put into any of it yeah. um as as counterintuitive as that sounds is what allowed me to just kind of was the reason the- I was able to get off of places that they were able to actually see you I guess in yeah. some way and yeah I, yeah and I wonder you know given everything that you've talked about in 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 the conversation today what what one thing if if, if there is only one and you know would you change within clinical psychology so whether that be policy level or just something more sort of like personal mm. in terms of what your journey has been and and you've you've mm. mentioned lots of things there I think in that last answer but kind of what what do you think would be the one thing yeah. that you would change to to kind of improve access let's say for people from working class background or kind of in the you know taking into account being working class in the profession more generally yeah gosh you asked me this before we actually started this podcast <laughs> and I still am sat like oh my god what a question it's mm. such a good question and such an important one but it's so hard to answer it is isn't it yeah it's so complex there's so many little things that would lead to big changes um but also I think I am such a big advocate for systemic change I think I think very systemically I work very systemically mm. so my my answer wants to lean into something more systemic but I'm trying to think if I have the words to articulate it or even the the sort of specifics but I guess it's really made me think about just even just beyond the psychology the professions and disciplines around it thinking about like psychiatry and mm. um in particular and like the the power differentials and the the sort of um hierarchies that exist between um the systems within systems within systems that create healthcare and mental health care mm. um and i think there's this real sense of like competition between professions there's this real sense of competition within mm. clinical psychology there's part of me that I think the one thing that I would change is somehow eliminate that eliminate that sense of like needing to be the best because actually Mm. 
all we need to do is be a human being and support the people that we need to support at the most human level yeah um but I know it's not as simple as that. That's like a real like, oh, can we not just all like live and love and like, um, you know, be but peaceful. I, and I don't mean it like that, I think. But sorry, what are you going to say, Clarabella? No, I just I feel like I've sort of cut you off in the midst of saying something really important because yeah. these things are tricky to sort yeah. of clarify because they're, they're, they're big, tricky things like in, and they yeah. don't necessarily have simple answers you know and I think we're very much at sort of a, a stage within some of the positive change that's going on in the profession where we're, we're working this stuff mm. out aren't we but I just yeah. think through speaking to you today kind of the, the the real thing that stood out for me was something that you were sort of saying around like that interview process and how the trauma that you were experiencing essentially allowed you to sort mm. of I don't know cast off some of the anxiety that we might bring to some of those those situations yeah. normally and, and to actually mm. the you shone through and that was what helped them see you <laughs> and yeah, help yeah, them yeah. see the value of you in, in getting onto training and I think you know throughout speaking to you today that you know there's definitely something of that quality that you have in being able to sort of be you let's say and communicate oh, you and I'm just sort of like linking that together and, and that that's hard I'm not just I mean it is a compliment but I'm not just saying it's a compliment it's like if I think about my own sort of experience at times within clinical psychology how much I have felt it wasn't okay to be me or, or losing sight of who me was given how much mm. I tried mm. to change and, and fit the mold or just to get on or whatever it was and yeah. I think you know going back to how you've answered that final question and like hopefully mm. like where we'll leave it today it's like but isn't there something really important about us bringing ourselves and being mm. ourselves and how that actually yeah. does in, in all the different parts of kind of what you've talked about with your supervisor, you know, yeah. with, with the interview, with, with service users, there's something of that same quality of, of being you, you know, yeah. and, and how, how important that is and how we shouldn't lose that. And part of you is coming from that working class background and how you've how that has shaped definitely. you as well definitely and I think I was just thinking about something um as you were saying that is that kind of on a on a profession-wide level I was thinking about that sort of push and drive to be something that's really like evidence-based be something that's really like scientific we have to prove ourselves as a profession mm -hmm. constantly in our worth um we can't you know we can't use um things that aren't evidence-based in case they do this or and there's real valid reasons around some of those things but I think mm. that the overall narrative is that idea of having to be something to be able to gain something like um, funding or resources or yeah just belief or valid you know validity as a profession whether that's from the people higher up or the people for want of a better phrase like lower down you know those who have less power than us the people yeah. that we serve yeah um, I, I think there's that real sense of having to perform and do something to be able to just be a valid yeah. sort of profession. Mm. Um, mm. And I think just you kind of helped me make that link a little bit when you were saying that. But yeah, I think representation is a huge, huge part of all of this. Like you say, like just mm. being yourself and being able to show that actually we can exist within this profession that is valid. It's possible. Mm. It's um, mm. and it's not the whole. Like I said before, we before we filmed this. Um, it's not the whole work hard enough and you'll get there because actually no realistically there are barriers yeah. that are really important to recognize and acknowledge mm. and squash for people to be able to make this easier we shouldn't have to work so hard to be able to get to the same places that other people can you know with a click of their fingers with knowing mm -hmm. the right person mm -hmm. um, so I think yeah just even just this podcast I think is a step in the right direction mm -hmm. just for people to hear that actually there's so much strength um, and and we have a space here. Yeah, exactly. And yes, um, we do. <laughs> <laughs> and that feels like the perfect sort of point to end it on. And just to say, yeah. just a huge thanks, Rachel, for kind of That's sharing your story and kind of providing some really helpful, I think, ad advice and tips and wisdom along the way. So lovely to speak to you. Thank you for having me. I'm very sorry it took us way over time because I just chat so much, but thank you for <laughs> listening and giving me space to chat so much. A really lovely conversation. So that concludes our conversation with Rachel. We want to thank her so much for giving us her time. Kate and I shared some reflections on Rachel's story and we hope you enjoy listening to those now. Here you go. 
so that was the um recording that we did with Rachel back in in the summer um and myself and Clarabella have just sat down together just to have a a quick reflection on um Rachel's journey and some of the topics that she spoke about um Clarabella do you want to go first (laughs) what are your thoughts (laughs) well we were just having a brief catch up before Mm. um before hitting record on this and and both of us I guess we're just both singing Rachel's praises really in that I really felt like her interview was such an interesting one to do particularly in terms of hearing her whole journey I suppose right from sort of childhood and pre-psychology through to where she is now in the doctorate so yeah I I really enjoyed that episode and really felt as though there were some key points that hopefully um, I'll try and and hold in mind myself, but also kind of hopefully other people listening would find useful as well. Um, and like I think, like you you said when we were talking as well, we did we did summarise those hopefully at the end of the interview. But I guess. The one that really stood out for me and, and hopefully, I mean, this is perhaps less of a, a learning point more than sort of something that I feel would be really helpful to explore further, which was essentially the the interaction between class and mental health. And Rachel was talking in the interview about her experience of having friends come over when she was younger and noticing in high school maybe for the first time, mm. um, you know, that, that perhaps she was different in some way and that being class related. And I just feel that that's a real area of, of kind of further exploration around that interaction between uh, class and mental health and, and some of those tricky emotions like shame and anxiety mm. that, that she mentioned. Yeah, that's so true. Mm. Mm. yeah go on you were gonna say something no I think you know that there you know I don't necessarily have like a really clear point around that other than I you know feel that that is something that's really important to to kind of think about further to to you know hopefully in in other podcast interviews that we do yeah that would be good you know to really think about that um and then kind of some of the other points that she mentions. What One thing that really stood out to me, actually, was the idea of um, a mentor. And she didn't put that across as like, I'm coming here, I'm being interviewed, and I'm telling you that I think a mentor is a really good thing to have. Mm. But for me, what came out of her story was that experience that she mentioned her supervisor during her master's, didn't she? And mm. how her supervisor was able to see what Rachel had the qualities yeah yeah, the qualities that she she had and I was just reflecting on how big a difference that can make in Mm. someone's career trajectory yeah of course yeah (laughs) yeah that that one supervisor or that one mentor I mean that can really perhaps be the difference between you know being able to pursue clinical psychology or or further barriers or some of those things yeah that's such a good point actually because I hadn't really thought about that sort of what what would have Rachel's journey been like if she didn't have yeah um I can't remember her name off the top of my head was it Julie or Judith (laughs) Judith Roberts I think Judith yeah Um, kind of being there and sort of really supporting her at that early stage what yeah what would Rachel's journey have looked like would she even sort of be on this journey yeah. towards qualifying yeah that's a really good point yeah and and I I suppose um you know p- part of what was in my mind as well was some of the more newly developed schemes around yeah sort of mentorship and things and how that that's how that's important I guess both pre-qualification and post-qualification mm-hmm. you know to think about some of these things that come can come up as as barriers you know class being being obviously you know a really important one but I think also just in kind of personal and professional development Mm. being in this career anyway yeah yeah um I think one of the things that I really took from listening to that back was just around 
being having to be like a bit of a social chameleon in a way. yeah um like the way Rachel was talking about the way she is around service users compared to her yeah. peers on the course and even things like her accent changes and the way she says words and I think yeah that is something that probably will resonate with a, a lot of people yeah um, and I think I think most people sort of naturally do that anyway don't they but potentially there's something in there about being working class and going into clinical psychology and, and feeling that more than mm. other people um I think that's could be something that's really interesting to talk about potentially in the future absolutely because it's a form of masking in lots of ways yeah, isn't it yeah. and, and we know that that is exhausting you know if you are masking for whatever reason that 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 might be and so yeah I think it's 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 really important that you pointed that out and I guess on the flip side to that Kate the other thing that stood out to me and I think she did herself articulate this really clearly she said be a human you know be human and she I think she gave a lovely example of that when she was talking about um I think you asked her the question what would you say to somebody if they I think it was if they'd just got on the course or and she just talked about like just like don't read a book don't, yeah <laughs> don't put the book down put the books down like be a human be whatever yeah. and actually um I think that's a really helpful answer to, to your specific question about let's say starting training but I think just at different points you know throughout mm. the career because it can be such an all-consuming kind of career to be in that actually it's really important to to have a life outside of that and not not just I guess from a well-being perspective but also to not lose that humanness mm. <laughs> ground yourself as well yeah 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 remember sort of who you are and mm. I think but I think it is difficult isn't it because sort of going on that journey of clinical psychology you do feel like I think we've mentioned before in other in other podcasts about mm. trying to fit that mold yeah and I think that that is a really good point of coming back to like this is who I am and this is what I bring and yeah I, I don't need to be that persona all the time yeah because I guess if you link those two points the idea of like masking or being mm. a, chame- a chameleon I guess you're more potentially more likely to do that if you're not devoting time or giving yourself giving yourself space to be you because mm. it's less clear as to kind of your identity or the way that you might use language or what your interests are and and some of those things yeah, as well so that's so true yeah so I, I feel I feel some really helpful points were made and, and and the last one which hopefully you know you got the sense that we were all having quite a laugh about I think in 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 the interview itself was her um her rhyming of the the <laughs> less the less, the less you care the better you fare yeah yeah and the thing is like you've got to laugh about it because I think so many of us have been in that position where the pressure the anxiety has just been too far in the driving seat that it tips beyond that point of being kind of a useful focus or a useful energy and makes it just so difficult to let's say be ourselves in an interview or, or whatever else it is and that's really kind of sad and annoying when yeah. that happens isn't it you know and that, that I mean you know she she was talking about some of the more traumatic reasons as to why she was caring less at the time that she interviewed so of course that's a slightly different thing but she was she was taking that point wasn't she that there's something Mm. in that that actually if we're able to step back from that pressure in some way that our real selves can come through and actually some of those things that matter so much to us you know getting an AP post or interviewing for the declin or you know going up a band once you're post qualified that actually, yeah. you know, th- that it is perhaps that crucial difference of actually caring a little bit less sometimes is is potentially yeah. a really good thing. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost like she dropped that mask, that social chameleon yeah. for the for the interview, and actually it it did really well for her. It showed her like bubbly, genuine self, which we I think we got a real clear picture of through that, that <laughs> interview as well. So maybe we kind of end on that point in the reflection. Yeah. And I think that would definitely be one 
that I would really try it on a behavioural level to sort of change in in kind of some of my professional experiences moving forward. And again, mindful that we're coming up to soon the interview season. So kind of also hope that that's something that resonates with other people that might be listening to this in terms of you know care but perhaps mm. care care less <laughs> yes certainly something that I'm gonna try and take forward <laughs> so thank oh, you Rachel thank you Rachel and we'll we'll do a review on how well Kate and I <laughs> have done that maybe at some point in the in the future <laughs> thank you for listening to today's episode of the class Clinsag podcast Please check out the description box where we will leave our Twitter and Instagram handles so you can keep up to date with everything our group's currently doing. Please get in contact with us if you have any ideas for the podcast going forward or if you'd like to ask us any questions. Details of how you can get in contact with us will be in the descriptions box. Thanks again for listening. We hope you can join us for the next episode. <laughs>